Hello, I'm Dick Foth, and welcome to Known, Stories to Make Sense of It All. You say, that's a bit of an audacious claim, Stories to Make Sense of It All. How are you going to do that? I think by listening to the story of an individual, it puts skin on truth, and it informs our own lives. So these podcasts are about those kinds of conversations and reflections, and the hope is that as we explore other people's worlds and journeys, we get help for our own. At the heart of it all, we want to engage the story of Jesus of Nazareth to get perspective, actually, for how life really works. Thanks for tuning in. Let's do this. You know, it's a rare moment these days that in our culture, we get to have a conversation with someone who has a life trajectory that embodies not just the American dream, but anyone's dream. This is a story of a man from rural beginnings in South Texas who pursued a course of interest and study that brought him to the halls of academe and ultimately national and international prominence in his chosen field, agricultural sciences. In short, that's about food. He has a global view of the need for adequate food resources. This is how he says it. I believe that production of food, fiber, and fuel through agriculture is an honorable profession, fundamental to human existence, and that meeting the needs of the expanding global population is essential to survival and prosperity in our human species. Through all his achievements over the last 50 years, There shines a wonderful combination of keen intellect, engaging personality, and a humble spirit. His name is Dr. Bob Easter, and I want you to meet him. My friend today is, uh, my guest, is Bob Easter, and we're sitting in Champaign, Illinois, 135 miles south of Chicago. And Bob, it's great to have you with me. Well, it's nice to see you again. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thanks. I detect in you, and this is a setup, I detect in you a slight Texas accent. I can't escape it, can <laughs> As hard as I try. <laughs> tell me tell me where you were born and brought up. This is my standard question. Where, where are you from originally? I was, I was born in San Antonio, Texas, actually, but it was the nearest hospital to our little town, 100 miles west, almost to the border with Mexico. Okay. So that's where I grew up, in a town of about uh, 750 people. Uh-huh. Majority Latino, so yeah. I speak bad Spanish fluently <laughs> as a result of that. And uh, went to, had a good little school, so yeah. I had the good fortune of growing up in a, in a school with a lot of opportunity. We were all in the band. We all played sports. We all did everything. Really? So I had, had those opportunities. And then uh, attended a community college for two years locally. And... Uh, the area had been developed after early 1900s because there was water. There okay. was, if you drill a well, water just bubble out on the surface. And my family had moved there from Missouri, and uh, what they didn't realize was that was a little geologic pocket of water. And once it was used up, it, it was dry. Okay. <laughs> and so by the 1960s, my dad was uh, seeing the future. And he would say to me, Bob, you've got to get an education. What, what did he do? What did your dad do? He was a farmer, farm manager for, a, okay. for an investor. And uh, he said, you've got an education because there's not going to be a future here. And that was good advice. I never had a guilt about not going back home. So, sure. Uh, I so, went from there to Texas A&M right? and uh, did two degrees there. 
And uh, in, as I was in my first was actually in ag agricultural education. Okay. I've been very much uh, impacted by my high school ag teacher, vocational agriculture, and I thought I wanted to do that. And in my senior year, and I went in to pick up my term project, I, the person who taught pork production, which was that course, said, have you ever thought of going to graduate school? And I thought, well, what's, what does that mean? Coming from my background, graduate school is what sure. school teachers did to get a, a raise, frankly, right? <laughs> a master's. And uh, he explained to me, no, it involves research. And so I decided to stay with him. Did a master's there, and towards the end of that uh, program, uh, there was a speaker from the University of Illinois on the campus in my field in animal nutrition, specifically swine nutrition. And swine nutrition. Swine, uh, I feed pigs. Slopping hogs. I'm a pig farmer. Well, pig it's a little more sophisticated. Than that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, "Would you be interested in coming to the University of Illinois to do a doctorate with me?" And uh, so I did. And uh, as I finished up, I had two options. Uh, one was to go back to Texas A&M, where I had an offer. And by chance, the second was to stay at the University of Illinois. And uh, my heart said, you've got to go back to Texas. Once a Texan, you never leave sure. Texas. My wife's from Missouri. We had met at Texas A&M. And she's much more logical. And she said, you got to stay where the hogs are. <laughs> so for the next 40-odd years, I stayed at the University of Illinois. She's from the show-me state. That's right. <laughs> Show me the money. Yeah. Well, the, the person that you came to work under at that time was Dr. David Baker. That's correct. Who's a, yeah. who's a mutual friend now. Now gone on, but he but he went to the National Academy of Sciences later yeah. in his he did. He career. was one of the very few agricultural scientists that was made that, that has been made a member of the National Academy. Really? A truly remarkable individual. And, and especially wasn't especially amino acids. Amino acids, which is a subdiscipline of of nutrition. Yeah. And uh, he really changed the world in many respects. Really. So uh, he deserved very much his. Right. I had the pleasure of being at the National Academy when he was in. Oh, Memphis, really? So that was quite a day. Quite he did. He would try to explain to me what he did, and I would just, and I'd nod and say, "Well, that's amazing." <laughs> I didn't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, well, he was a truly remarkable individual, not just as a scientist, but also yeah. as a very as a spiritual person. individual, yeah. a very you person bet. of enormous integrity. So, so you came here to study. Uh, and research in swine nutrition. That's correct. Uh, you ended up being an administrator, head of the ag sciences area, or the. Uh, I uh, after twenty years, I became head of my home department, animal okay. sciences. Okay. And then five years later, I was asked to be dean of the College of Agriculture, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences, the Ag School. Yeah. And I did that for eight years. And uh, there was, uh, I announced my retirement, and I was asked to stay on for a few months to be the interim provost to that position was filled. Okay. And uh, there for, was... Uh, for our listeners, what's a provost? The provost is the senior academic officer on a campus, and usually the, uh, the, the number two person in terms of campus On, on, the, on the local campus. campus. And the individual who has responsibility for budget, typically, which becomes... So, like, what's the budget when you were... Uh, we were just a bit north of a billion dollars, I guess. A billion dollars? On this campus, yeah. How many students on this campus? This campus then had about 40,000. I think this year it's increasing. It's up close it's to 40,000. 40,000, yeah, billion-dollar budget. Yeah. 
And you grew up on a pig farm. Okay, correct, this is yeah. this is good. I did that for five months. There was an un, a series of unfortunate and untimely retirements, and uh, I was asked to stay on to be the chancellor of the campus as an interim. So what's a chancellor? The chancellor is the senior. He runs, he's in charge of the campus. He's the guy. Uh, University of Illinois is a system. There are three campuses, so the uh, chancellor is responsible for the the flagship Urbana-Champaign campus. And I insisted throughout that process that I was going to retire. <laughs> and I, I, at the end of two years, they had located a very capable lady to be the chancellor, and I happily retired. Okay. And then five months later, the person who had been hired to be the system president uh, resigned, and uh, I was asked to uh, return as the uh, to, to be the president the president of, of the system, the three campus system three with about eighty thousand students, about okay. a four billion dollar budget. Okay. The uh, it was an interesting. I, my wife and I owned some farmland north of town, and uh, we were out one Saturday afternoon picking up a few rocks out of our. <laughs> out of a waterway that our, our daughter could use to build a fire pit in the back of their home. I get this call on the cell phone, and Chris Kennedy, whose father was Bobby Kennedy, was board chair, and he said, hey, Bob, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm picking up rocks. And his response was a very long pause. And I think going through his mind is I'm beginning to ask, I'm going to ask this person to be the president of the University of Illinois. <laughs> and then on Sunday afternoon, he's picking up rocks. <laughs> so this I may not I, be his best move. Yeah, his finest that's, hour. That's, that's right. <laughs> so uh, he, we had the conversation a couple of days later and I said, well, Chris, is this, you know, six months? Or he said, no, you got to stay at least two or three years because uh -huh. we want things to stabilize. And for whatever reason, they thought I, <laughs> I guess wow. I was a uh, could help with that. So I spent three years as president and then, then retired and was replaced by a very capable individual. So How I, long ago was that? Uh, just over two years ago. So it's recent, yeah, by my standards. Yeah, well, yeah. that's correct. I mean, it's yeah. just yesterday. Yeah. By yeah. Well, it seems like it, but... Uh, uh, when I read the local paper, I'm just glad that I don't have to go to that office. <laughs> you know, there's always budget issues. There's always other kinds of things to deal with. So, uh, wow. But I've had a, a uh, for me, a totally unexpected life. And what has been truly unique is that, as I think about this, I've actually never applied for a job. Wow. Dave Baker asked me to come to Illinois for a PhD, invited me to. I was invited to go on the faculty here. I was asked by my faculty service department head. I was asked by the provost to be the dean and these other stories I've told. Mm -hmm. And um, it's as though there's a doors open. Of course, a lot of doors open, but there's mm -hmm. been a sense of this is the one to walk through. Wow. And so you, you begin to ask, is there a plan? <laughs> is this all coincidental? And one would argue probably is. But uh, then there may be that it, it's not. So, uh, and you're a, you're a person that, has, that is a, uh, a man of faith, if I can correct. put it that way. You can. How does, so when you say plan, I'm thinking yeah. God's design and all that. How, how did you navigate, if that's the mm -hmm. right word, the scientific structure, the scientific mm -hmm. methodologies, the all of the things that that come into play on any university mm -hmm. campus. How did that 
work? How did people yeah. see? Because I know a lot of settings, but people who are very good at what they do, right. but are people of faith, are some sometimes right. maybe often discounted. So how did how did yeah. you deal I, with? I all guess that? in in part the colleges of agriculture historically have drawn from typically rural communities okay. from the faculty, and there's. I think, and and uh, in my case, I was surrounded largely by people of faith. So okay. it uh, it made that much. To, I have colleagues in other parts of this campus and other campuses who had a more of a challenge in that, that sure. regard. I guess for me, I, maybe I'm really old-fashioned, but if you go back and think of the people who did a lot of the very early science in the 17, 1800s, when the Western world was really opening up to this after the Renaissance science, right. scientific method, they saw, and many of them were clergymen, yes. they saw their role as expanding the understanding of God's creation. Okay. And I think of science in that way. There's a world out there that that has been created, and my role is to, to just get a little better insight into how it all works. And wow. uh, so it, it's been a very interesting journey, and I've been very comfortable in that, doing that. I have a friend who's now gone. You, you may have known him at the university who was one of the top analytical chemists in the world. He was a spectroscopist by the name of Dr. Howard Momstead. I know who. Yeah, I, I didn't know him personally. There's actually a book about him. Yes. Yeah, which I've read. Howard was a dear friend. We've traveled oh. to India together. We've done all kinds. And especially was light. Mm -hmm. Use of light sure. for scientific measurement. And when he won the Fisher Award, which mm -hmm. was American it's Chemical big, Society, I think he was yeah. the second or third recipient. They had a big gala at the American mm -hmm. uh, Hotel in, in uh, New York City, Black mm -hmm. Tideal. And he gave a speech at the end. They had done a symposium, given speeches. And at the end, he gave a speech. And then he took, he, um, he just said, you know, all of my life I've been studying God's creations. Mm -hmm. And six years ago, some number, six years ago, um, I discovered God. And all that I am and ever hope mm. to be mm. is because of this Jesus, because of this God. Mm. And he took mm. off his lavalier and put it down. And the whole assembly came to their feet in a standing wow. ovation. Mm. And I came back and told David Baker mm -hmm. this. And David said, I've never heard of that. Mm -hmm. Scientists don't stand up and cheer <laughs> for somebody. <laughs> but, but that sure. that statement, that sure. willingness to, to speak of sure. God... It's a powerful yeah, thing. It is. Yeah. How, do, how do you encourage students, undergrad, grad, whatever, how do you encourage students to walk out life and faith? You know, I, I think within the public university system and the, the world we're in, uh, overt proselytizing, if I could yeah, use that yes, word, yeah. is just something you, you yeah, don't do. Doesn't work. So I think you do it through your lifestyle. And uh, you know the the life you live, and uh, hopefully they see a reflection of Christ in, in your life. Yeah, and your skill. You know, if you're if you're only an okay mm -hmm. prof, and not a not a person who works at it, and so forth. Well, they don't last very long. You know, I, I uh, you know, I've always said this about the University of Illinois, and you can say that I'm a. Uh, probably been brainwashed by being here my whole career in some sense, but 
it does have an environment, department by department, that allows pretty mediocre people like me to do things they couldn't do other places. So, <laughs> don't go too far with that notion. <laughs> this is going around the world, but don't let that bother. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a great, great thought. Yeah. I, I think. Let me, let me just ask this, and this is a conversation more than an interview, I think. Uh, you've seen generations now mm-hmm. of young people come through. I had the privilege of being a college president of a small college, church-related college, which is nothing compared to what you've done. But watching students come through, do have students changed or to what degree have you seen students change over the last 20 years? Let's, let's say since the coming of the Internet, just, just using that as sort of a place. If you want to go back to when I arrived here, it was at the height of the Vietnam War, just yes. towards the end of yeah, it. Yeah, I remember and, that. Uh, there was a great deal of rebellion against just about anything. 5,000 National Guard troops on campus, bayonets. Right. I remember that. And, but the... Uh, Students have changed a lot since then. I think there's a, a level of the we hear a lot in the media about intolerance, but there's also a level of tolerance oh, sure. that, that's yeah. present that's there. You you refer to the uh, the coming of the internet and it having a profound influence on every dimension of our lives, and the right. academy's no no different. Right. Um, and the ability to to use that technology and the extent to which students are using it for learning opportunities and then social relationships and so forth has profoundly changed the kind of the world that we live in. I I still give some lectures in my old pork production class. And uh, it's now, for years, I used overheads and I wrote on them with a a pen. And today it's a, uh, there's I think a dozen or so TV screens around the wall. There are tables with movable chairs or on wheels, and most of the class doesn't even look at me. They're looking at the television screen on the wall that's you know closest to them, and it's a, just a completely different environment. But the the interest in learning, the passion of the students is just as strong as it ever it ever was. And uh, this university, like many, has changed a great deal demographically. Uh, early, in, it hasn't been that many years ago when almost everyone in my class would have been from Illinois, right. if not from a, a farm somewhere yes, in Illinois. Sir. And today it's a very international campus. Uh, demographically, the ethnic backgrounds, the, the faith backgrounds, the diversity is yes. much different from what it was. You know, and I guess the thing that... Uh, we we find ourselves every 20 years or so reinventing ourselves, sure. and I, that's a good thing. Yes. It's healthy, and but it is a reality. That, sure. And so I guess one of the things that I've come away from that is that uh, it's not a bad thing. It's not nothing, something to be feared, but it is something you have to be aware of. Sure. And to the extent that you have a responsibility for guiding thought as people reinvent the institution, that's a, a role to play. Just... Two or three things, and I'll I'll get out of your hair. And mm-hmm. You can go back to picking up rocks on the. <laughs> <laughs> the as I've talked to people, there are a couple of folks who knew I was going to come and yeah. chat with you. One of the words that I've heard used about you is that you you are a unifier, that you 
have the capacity. And I think my friend Lynn, mm-hmm. my, my Renaissance farmer friend Lynn, mm-hmm. who's sitting in the yeah, room with us, use that, use that phrase or that word to mm-hmm. describe you in unity or unifying uh, capacity in a university setting, mm-hmm. that's no small deal. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a big deal. Tell me about that. What, what is it in Bob Easter's head or heart yeah. that, that allows you to do that? You know, I, I, I guess I had a variety of things, and I, I appreciate that thing that's said because I hear it being said to me, and Good. for whatever reason, that's who I am. Uh, I, I guess I had low expectations of myself, so my ego, to, <laughs> coming from where I did, my, I don't have a great ego to deal with, fortunately, or at least I don't think I do. Uh, but, you know, there's a, a verse in Micah that talks about uh, what does the Lord expect of me, and it's, it's to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord. And that's basically the path I've tried to follow. And if that helps bring people together, then uh, that's a good thing. That's tremendous. That's just, that's great. A university campus is both a wonderful learning environment and often the battleground of ideas. For faculty and administrators, the matter of how one expresses faith can often be a slow dance through a minefield. (laughs) Bob Easter found a colleague that did that well when he met Dr. Steve Sample, president of the University of Southern California from 1991 to 2010. It's interesting that when he resigned, uh, so many folks commented on Steve Sample's uh, quality as the leader of of really an international institution. This is John Mork, chairman of the board of University of Southern California. Dr. Sample engineered arguably the most dramatic rise in quality and ranking of any American university. From the very start, he understood the entrepreneurial zeal of USC and fueled our desire to be excellent. If there were a tagline for his leadership style, it would be never let up. And the results were nothing short of spectacular. Some years ago, somebody gave me a copy of a book uh, that Dr. Sample had written, and it's called The Guide to Contrarian Leadership. It's a small book, but it has a powerful punch, and I encourage you to pick it up, The Guide to Contrarian Leadership. But I think the way he approaches life could best be summed up in the commencement address that he, uh, President Steve Sample, gave at USC, the year he stepped down, 2010. And I won't read it all to you because I want to get back to Dr. Easter, but this um, shapes the way someone like him, and and I believe Dr. Easter, thinks. This was given on May 14, 2010, and he entitled it Three Questions. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to excerpt it. You may be wondering how I got to be this year's commencement speaker. Does it mean that everyone else to whom we offered this honor turned us down? No, it doesn't mean that at all. At USC, we have a committee that chooses our commencement speaker. This committee receives advice from people across the campus about potential speakers. But the final choice is made by the committee, and this committee consists of one person, me, 
the president. <laughs> Since this is my last commencement as president of USC, lots of people suggested that I should be the speaker. I referred this suggestion to the committee of one, and lo and behold, it passed muster. He goes on to say, I don't wish to focus on your professional or political developments in this commencement address. Rather, I want to talk to you about your personal development as human beings. That's because in the final analysis, what determines a person's ultimate success is not so much his professional abilities or political brilliance as it is his character. What I should like to do is pose three questions, the answers to which only you can formulate. Moreover, I hope to persuade you that these three questions underlie many of the more complicated issues which you will have to address during your lifetime. The first of my questions is, how do you feel about money? He goes on to say, the question I'm asking here is not how should you feel about money, but how do you feel about money? And then he explains some some of the things that he has observed over the years. His conclusion is this. If a person can discover early on how he feels about money, he will be able to address many of life's choices in a more definitive and satisfying way. My second question, he says, is a bit peculiar, but it is prompted by my concern that in an insidious sort of way, America is mistreating his children. So my second question to you is this. How do you feel about children, both those you will someday call your own and those of your neighbors as well? He expands on that by saying, is there, is there another industrialized nation that subjects its children to such high levels of violence at home, at school, and on the streets as ours does? Is there another industrialized nation which has given its public school system as little attention as we have? All of you graduating this morning are fortunate to have attended good schools and an outstanding university, and yet here we are, one of the wealthiest nations in history, and we within our borders, we have within our borders some of the worst elementary and secondary schools in the world. Indeed, for all Americans, our greatest single challenge in the years ahead will be the reconstruction of our society into one that is user-friendly to children. My third question is the most difficult of the three and by far the most personal and embarrassing. No, has nothing to do with sex. Rather, the question is, how do you feel about God? Say what? God? Did he say God? Why should anyone bring up God at a secular commencement ceremony? Surely most of us, as modern intellectuals, have grown beyond the point at which God or our relationship to him is a serious question. Let me assure you that I'm not trying to sell you a set of religious beliefs. Here again, as in the case of money, the question is not how should you feel about God, but how do you feel about God in fact? He goes on to expand on that, and then he concludes this way. One of mankind's deepest and most abiding concerns for all times and all places and for all peoples is our feeling for and relationship with God. My point is that you may be able to run from your true feelings about God or non-God, but it's very difficult to hide from them in the long term. Probably it's to your advantage to discover and confront those feelings sooner rather than later. Well, 
There you have my small contribution to all the parting advice you will receive as you graduate from the University of Southern California. Just three simple questions. How do you feel about money? How do you feel about children? How do you feel about God? I do believe giving careful consideration to these three questions in the years ahead will prove beneficial to you. For in so doing, you will learn a great deal about yourself. You may even come to like and accept yourself a little better. You will almost certainly gain a better understanding of the meaning of life, of your place in the universe, and of how you might live in productive peace and harmony with your fellow human beings. And that, after all, is what living well is all about. God bless you, and fight on. I was delighted to receive this uh, uh, commencement address from Dr. Easter when he said to me, let me, uh, let me illustrate what I mean about Steve Sample. That was great. You brought up uh, Dr. Steve Sample, who mm-hmm. is the former president at USC. Right. And, and you were contacting him for what reason? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's an alum, and he's had a successful career, I should say. He had, because he's, yes. um, sadly he's passed. But um, one of the roles of a president is to visit with alums and uh, suggest that they might uh, (laughs) make a contribution. What's what's that old line about presidents or guys who are men or women who live in big houses and beg? (laughs) I've not heard that one, but it's it's a good one. But, uh, yeah, I I did get a couple of chances to meet with Dr. Sample. Um, He's a wonderful guy. Provided great leadership to USC for a long time. Yeah. Well, close to 20 years, I think. Your career has impacted a boatload of people, to put it, to understate it by, by any measure. And to see what I would see from my perspective, see the hand of the Lord on Bob Easter from pigs in Texas to, to, to leading one of the premier universities in the world and not losing your way or not being sucked in by the bright lights or crushed by the weight of it because there's, there's no small part. Is it, it's just an honor to be able to sit with you. Well, you know, this may seem trite, but I've had the good fortune. I, I'm a weak person. We, you know, we're all susceptible to things. But I've had around me individuals my whole career who've been incredibly supportive and people of deep faith. And uh, I, I think uh, that's that's been part of the reason I've been able to do anything that I've done. So we don't do it alone. I absolutely agree. We all know that the greatest of leaders don't lead alone. They always have able and loyal friends who advise, encourage, and challenge along the way. For those who are married, most often that closest guide is a spouse. For Dr. Easter, it is his wife, Cheryl. You know, it's important who you pair yourself with going through life. And I had the good fortune to to meet Cheryl a long time ago. And... uh, uh, she's a person of great faith, and mm. uh, that's been tremendously helpful to me along the way. You know, I think, I think we don't understand a lot of times how, how powerful it is to have someone who is, is not only supportive, but also dreams the dream mm. in some way. Mm-hmm. 
And they they help us from getting fat-headed when people say, isn't he wonderful? <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. really important. You know, sometimes <laughs> I'll speak, and it goes pretty good. And somebody will come and say, it must be wonderful to be married. <laughs> She'll say, honey, let me talk. <laughs> okay, well, Bob, thank you very much. And I just I just think the encouragement that your life and your excellence in what you do, your capacity to bring people together. I think that Micah verse is tremendous for, just as a template, isn't mm-hmm. it, for things. I, it, it's just a, a, a great model for us and really honored. I have one last question. It's not a deep question. Ruth and I would do conferences every once in a while, and one of my questions I like to ask is what did you do for fun as a kid? <laughs> I asked this question once in Virginia, and a lovely blonde lady in the front row raised her hand and said, I rode pigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said, really? I'm from Oakland, California, right, and that right, doesn't right. compute. I said, how do you ride a pig? She said, I was brought up in Iowa, and what you do is you get up on a trough, and you don't want one of those 400-pound sows that just had a litter, because they're mean. Jump on their back, and you grab their ears, and off you go. And the crowd, we had about 200, they just started laughing. I said, just for fun, anybody else here ever ride a pig? And like five guys came out of the closet. Wow. <laughs> so I'm just, I, just my question for President Emeritus of the University of Illinois. Did you ever ride a pig, Bob? Yeah, this is going to disappoint you, but I've not ridden a pig. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, the only thing close to that, uh, having grown up in South Texas, you're a cowboy. I mean, that's oh, just sure. part of the deal. Yeah. And I decided one one fine day that I would bring the hogs in with a horse. And I learned that pigs don't herd like cattle. Is that? <laughs> so is that I wouldn't. I did, that didn't lead me to try riding one of them either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I just want you to know, this is a piece of information you probably didn't pick up, but there's a whole fraternity and sorority of Swine Sitters Anonymous around the world. <laughs> I've asked this question all over the world, and there's always somebody, so you actually, had, always yeah, somebody who wrote a big. That's remarkable. So, so I learned something new every day. Well, there you so, go. And, you know, Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon used to have the big challenge, what's smarter, a pig or a horse? What yeah, would you say? Well, the pig is. The pig is? Yeah. yeah. I think that's demonstrable. <laughs> <laughs> right. Dr. Bob Easter, President Emeritus University of Illinois, I'm grateful for your life, for your wisdom, for your time with us. And I think there are some folks out there who um, are encouraged because of what you've said and how you've uh, spoken today, and I'm grateful. Thank you. So as we wrap up this podcast, I come back to our title, An Unexpected Life. That title is a positive truth. That Bob Easter story is a profoundly fruitful account of the tenacity of a man and the faithfulness of God. The words that Bob quoted from the prophet Micah are worth hearing one more time and taken to heart. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Except to be just and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So be it.